You're listening to the PMO Strategies Podcast, where PMO leaders become impact drivers. This is episode 12. Well, hey there, welcome back to the PMO Strategies Podcast. I am your host, Laura Bernard, and as always, I am honored and grateful that you are allowing me to spend a little bit of your day with you. This podcast episode is sponsored by the PMO Impact Summit, our free live virtual event that is specifically targeted to help PMO leaders around the world make a bigger impact with their PMO. Go check it out at PMOImpactSummit.com and get ready to learn a ton of ways you can make a big impact with your PMO. It's PMOImpactSummit.com and when the event is live, it is a free opportunity to get tons and tons of training to help you with your PMO. So today we are talking to one of my favorite people in the entire world, Lee Lambert. Lee and I go way back to my early career as a board member of PMI chapters. Let's see, I got my PMP certification in 2004 and joined the board and met Lee right away when we started using him to help us with our big professional development day events. Welcome, Lee. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Laura. So Lee is one of the founders of the PMP and a PMI fellow with over 50 years of experience. That's right, five zero years of experience. He makes my, I don't know, 25 years or so look like nothing. He has held executive level positions and provided management consulting support to companies such as IBM, Motorola, General Electric, Sprint, Roche, and a plethora of government agencies. As an instructor, he has addressed over 50,000 students in 23 countries and was named PMI's Professional Development Provider of the Year. Lee, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Well, Lee, I've shared a little bit about your bio, but I'd love for you to just tell everyone a little bit more about you and your background and what you've been up to. I'll be happy to do that. I, uh, I got started in this business in uh, about 1966. Uh, a few days after I was married, actually, I started my first job, and uh, it was uh, doing drafting work uh, on double wall cryogenic uh, storage tanks. Very exciting work, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I decided it wasn't that exciting, and I quit and went to uh, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory out in California. They were recruiting in Utah very heavily, so I jumped on that because I got a huge raise, 100 bucks a month, and <laughs> went out there and started working on uh, nuclear-related projects for the government. Lasted there about two or three years before I got uh, a great offer from General Electric uh, in Sunnyvale, California, working on the fast breeder reactor. I went to Sunnyvale, spent about uh, 11 years there working on nuclear reactors, and, uh, and then uh, Jimmy Carter was elected president, and he had a very uh, anti-nuclear view, so it was pretty easy to see that that, that gravy train was going to come to an end. And so I, uh, I looked around and found a, an opportunity up in Richland, Washington. That's in, a, in the southeast corner of, of Washington. There are no trees, so when you think of Seattle, that's not Richland. Uh, and and uh, we, we joke about it, but we used to call it the armpit of America. So I went up there and, uh, and got involved in uh, project management deeply because they, uh, they needed someone to establish project management in their organization. Now, this was a $300 million a year laboratory run by Battelle out in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where I live now. And so uh, I had the opportunity to put in an enterprise system. Now, this was back when enterprise, nobody really knew what that meant. They, they didn't realize you could integrate an entire organization to provide uh, support data. And so and you got to remember, when I started in this business, we were using an abacus to do most of our work. <laughs> and, and an abacus. Now, I mean, now it's crazy what the amount of work that you can get done uh, in a very short period of time. So we successfully implemented the enterprise system. It was validated by the U.S. government. 
And then I was finally called out to Columbus headquarters to help them start a new division called the Project Management Division, coincidentally. And uh, once we started that, uh, I got, there was nothing left to do. I, uh, I got that put in place in about three years. And so in 1984, I looked around and said, you know, this is about as far as I'm going to go. And uh, in Battelle, I was heavily PhD oriented. And so that left me out. And I didn't, and I was only 37, so I didn't want to spend a lot of time just spending time. And so I decided to go out on my own. So in 99, uh, or in 84, sorry, I started uh, out as a consultant. Just to, you know, you know, all you got to do is get a business card and you can make it. And so I got some business cards and started to tap old people, clients that I had connected with during my GE and Patel runs. Mm -hmm. And things went pretty well. Then in 1999, my daughter, Erin, graduated from the Ohio State University with her MBA at Fisher School, and yeah. she was going to go out to the corporate world, and she decided if she's going to make somebody money, she might as well make it for her old man. So she, uh, she convinced me to start a firm uh, that focused almost totally on training, uh, and that's where uh, I began to really make connections, because we do subscription training. And at the time, it was what, what Carl Pritchard and I called the pig trough days. You just, I mean, there was just more than you could handle. Yeah. You put out a, a, an invitation to come and it filled immediately and then some. Yeah. And so that went on for a long time. And then as it slowed down, we started to realize all of the things that I've taught in all of my classes really addressed this whole idea of uh, what they're now calling digital transformation, uh, the 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 implementation of of an ability to really holistically manage an organization, not just a project. I mean, you can be a project manager, but that information that you generate has other impacts in other places in the organization. So I begin to look at how how can I help uh, focus on that integration. And, uh, and and later on, I'll tell you a little bit about one situation that uh, really exemplifies what we're talking about here in terms of the value of an enterprise application or a PPM uh, being managed by a PMO with centralized control and centralized capability of uh, delivering the information that's needed. Right. Yeah, and that is the topic of your summit presentation. So Lee is back again this year to be a part of the 2019 PMO Impact Summit. And definitely, if you have not signed up for that yet, definitely go sign up now. It will be free during the second half of September this year, 2019. And uh, we're going to be holding different sessions throughout a two-week period. So definitely make sure you register so you know when to catch Lee's session all about project portfolio management and he's going to thoroughly examine the methods of realizing the potential value of project portfolio management and explain why that is the thread that holds management and projects together. So he's going to dive deep into that in his session as a part of the summit. Make sure you go sign up. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the whys and the big picture and help people think about you know, how they should be leveraging project portfolio management, what's available to them, and what opportunities we might be missing. Isn't that right, Lee? That's correct. We, uh, I, I really want to talk a little bit about the power of the process and then maybe what's uh, available in the process. And I'll use an example of a small company, some of you are probably familiar with it, uh, IBM. Uh, when when uh, I had an opportunity to go work with IBM in 1993, this was when they were in, they were struggling. They were projecting an eight billion dollar loss that year. Wow! And uh, that's when they brought in Lou Gerstner. Now, Lou Gerstner had an interesting background: credit cards and tobacco. So how he was qualified for IBM, I don't know. Well, I learned later the reason was because he thinks holistically. He, mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what the product is. Uh, you got to manage it. And so he came in and immediately put out a, uh, well, we'll call it an edict that project management was going to be implemented and it was going to become the thread that held the entire organization together. What he found was there were 
far too many projects being planned and scheduled and approved, far more than they had people to execute them, far more than they had the time to get them done. And he started to cut those back by using the information, seeing where the conflicts were, enabling him to prioritize. Uh, and he eliminated hundreds, literally hundreds of projects wow. to focus on those that were going to deliver the most value for the organization. And uh, it took about three years for people to realize he wasn't kidding uh, and, and really began to focus on it. They, uh, they established a, a center that we now kind of refer to as a PMO, but they call it the Project Management Center of Excellence. Mm. Uh, so they, they control the information development, they control training. And so Carol Wright was the, the lady that took that over. And unfortunately, she's passed from brain cancer, but she did a job like I've never seen. Uh, and, and at the end of about three years, they had a very tightly integrated system that when they want, if they wanted to look at manpower loadings across time, if they wanted to look at where their costs were divided, where they were spending their money, all of that was available on request. Now they had standardized reports that come out and uh, they, they would come out, but then that's not the real value to me. It's not the real value. The value of the enterprise application is that if somebody decides they need a certain kind of information to support their decisions, they can get it. It's there. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's in the system and it's, it's available to get there. But, but the, the standardized reports are dangerous because you can end up with way more information than you need. The information that doesn't really support the system that you're going to be using. And so we look at that and, and uh, IBM was, was kind of the leader in, in this area. Uh, Motorola jumped on board, Sprint got a little bit involved. Uh, there were other organizations that began to see the value of enterprise. In fact, the, the, the major organizations, the top level management were excited about enterprise. I remember being so we, we've got to have that. Right. Then they found out that that was going to make things much more visible. Uh, they were going to be held just as accountable as project people for the work that they were doing. And believe it or not, they suddenly changed their mind. <laughs> and they, they, didn't want, they didn't want to do enterprise. They want to do the next level down. They want to do portfolio. Because that way they could blame the portfolio manager, not the director. And so we, uh, we looked at that and we kept trying to convince them, no, you, you want all the information. So that battle's been going on. Now, I sort of stepped out of that for a little while. And then in the last couple of years, I come back in. I can't believe the progress that hasn't been made, uh, that could have been made in this amount of time. And uh, if you if you've watched any of the stuff that Laura does, I, you know, I met her when she was just a child. She was <laughs> seven or eight years old. Uh, but if you look at if you look at what she's doing with her organization, she's really highlighting uh, what it is we've been trying to convince people of for years: is that the it, the information to support the decisions is there. All you have to do is figure out how you want to get it out. And so now we're seeing much more interest in that. We're seeing organizations focused on enterprise systems. I mean, we look at, uh, if you look at any of the big vendors, they've all got their enterprise applications. So there's plenty of, plenty of people out there that can make it happen if the organization's willing to do that. And this is the bad news, is they're not. They love, they love what you tell them they'll have when they're done, until you tell them it costs money. And then all of a sudden, well, we, we can do with what we've got. Uh, so the more and more you see organizations that have realistically implemented enterprise project management have begun to really demonstrate the value. They've begun to avoid bad decisions, avoid failed projects, or at least reduce the number of failed projects. And you, you just can't do that without the automated system. I've always felt like, I mean, like I said, I started in 66. I've always felt like if I had available to me today what the project management people of this era have, I'd run the world in project management. The, the amount of information and the timeliness of the information is so astounding to me that I'd love to have it. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go back in and, and do a project here and there, but uh, I'm too old. So I'm just going to talk about it instead of doing it for a little while. But I think that's, a, that's kind of the background. I've seen it go from nothing 
abacus, if you will, uh, to an, an incredibly powerful process. Now, the, one of the reasons we didn't have it earlier on, I think, is because it, it demanded too much, uh, too much space. In other words, we couldn't do it. With, we had to have mainframe computers to do some of the things that we can now do with the laptop in five minutes. Uh, so you got to look at it from that perspective. Is it that we didn't have all the capability early on? We have it now, and we're still not really utilizing it. And I think the main reason, two others well, too, uh, the cost to implement it, it, it impacts all parts of the organization, so it costs money to implement it. And second is that we that the decision makers don't like what they see. The information says you made a bad decision. The information says you didn't make any decision. So this information forces the decision makers to be accountable for their for their actions. Yeah, right. And gosh, there's just so much in all of that. And I'm thinking about the former me, you know, that spent 15 years inside organizations as a PMO leader. And I remember and can, you know, kind of reflect on where a lot of our PMO leaders listening today are. are. So what I'm always telling them is, listen, you are there to provide information for executives to make educated and informed decisions so that you can move projects forward. You can make sure that the return on investment is achieved for the strategic initiatives that are undertaken and that you're focusing on the right things in the first place. So you brought up a good point though that you know back in the day there really wasn't the ease of getting access to the information now i see a lot of people in positions where they feel like more information is better so they just start flooding you know with every possible metric that they can gather and they start flooding um their reports and overwhelming their stakeholders and executives with so much information so how do we have the right mindset, the right approach, before we even dig into taking advantage of what we already have in front of us, how do we even have the right mindset about what information is necessary? And how would you recommend PMO leaders are thinking about their role in driving those decisions? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the, the problem with uh, what, what information do I need is, is really going to be driven by uh, the executives and the PMO working together to determine what information will support your decision making. And there's a little bit of trial and error in that. There's not always going to be the best information for the uh, specific needs. So we have to retool that just a little bit. It, it, there's no canned solution. That's why if you go to a, a vendor and say, I want to enterprise project management, they say, well, here, we got it right here for you. Go ahead and take it. Now, you're, <laughs> That isn't going to work. I mean, anybody that's ever done an SAP application knows that. Uh, you hear it's off the shelf until you spend $3 million modifying it. Right. So you got to look at it in that way. How do we get it? Well, we, we have to take the time to sit down and talk about what kinds of information you need. One of the things that, that in today's matrix environment that is critical is resource information, resource distribution, because we've got this idea that we have these pool of, of skill set competent people and uh, we're just going to assign them out to projects and so we're doing that but if we do that independently poor little Bob is assigned to five projects at the same time and all of them are critical projects so decision makers need to understand that when you overload something's going to pop up and say hey this this person is already fully committed because what we find is we 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 accept more projects into the system than we have people to support them. And if we don't have some way of having that uh, be quickly identified, uh, then, then we're going to overcommit people on a regular basis. And you can get by with that for a while. Uh, people will rise to the occasion, but eventually they become overloaded and that effect is negative. So with, with an enterprise approach, I take all those project plans. We're, we're starting at the base. You, do, you don't start at the top. You start at the base with all the projects. And then you integrate all that project information. So if I just take the resource issue and I begin to integrate those resource distribution data and I find out that as soon as Bob's overcommitted, I get a little signal that says, you've got a problem here, then I can resolve it. And instead, I, I'm not getting that. And everybody's working 10 and 12 hours a week extra time, and pretty soon you reach that, that, that minimum level of effort that you can't get anything done. And so that's what we have to do. Now, this one, we spent a tremendous amount of time at the National Laboratory on this topic. 
And uh, when I got there in uh, 1979, when I got there, uh, my job was to uh, implement project management national lab. Now, this had never been done before, so I was pretty excited about that. And uh, so I got started on it, but as I started, they told me, oh, by the way, you have a kind of an auxiliary role, and that is to be liaison, liaison, say it's for liaison. If you ever get an <laughs> offer for liaison, take it, because you don't do anything. You just lays all day. That's what you do. And so uh, I got that job, and that included then coordinating with the control officer, project control officer down in the downtown office. So the first month I was there, I got there too late to have any input into the project uh, report that we were going to send down, but I still had to take it down and articulate it to the to the project control officer. So I asked my admin, I said, can you bring in the report? We need to take it down to the control office. And about two or three minutes later, here it comes into my office with a, a hand truck. Hand <laughs> truck? Uh, a hand truck with a stack of paper about five feet tall. <laughs> the hell is that? And he said, oh, that's the monthly report. I said, that's impossible. I said, a $300 million a year uh, program, small program, and you're telling me we got five foot of, of report? He said, well, we've been delivering it for two or three months. They love it. They absolutely love it. And I said, okay, let's go. So we went down, we got, we introduced, talked a little bit. He was a good old boy. You know, he's got a pickup truck with a gun rack in the back and a fishing rod sticking out the back. And so once we got once I got comfortable, I thought we were okay. I pointed to the report and I said, uh, Frank, what's this? And he said, what's this? You brought it. You know what this is. It's the monthly report. I said, yeah, I know. But there's no way that you're using all the information that's contained within that report. It's just not possible. He said, oh, no, Lee. He said, I've got 12 project control officers. And they swear by the fact, I've got to tell you, they're thinking about asking for more. Uh, and I just I, I laughed, kind of a sick laugh. Uh, but I said, no, that's not going to happen. I said, Let, I'll tell you what, are you a betting man? Sure, I'll take a bet. I said, I'll bet you I can prove you're not using all that information. And why should we bother creating it if you're not using it? He said, oh, no, oh, no. He said, you'll be wanting to do more. I said, okay, let's see that. So in September now, I got control of the report. I'm there for the whole month. So I gathered the report together. Can't change it. Remember, I haven't proven anything yet. Can't, just right. my opinion. And so I can't change it. So I, I get the report, but I take it a time to, to get into the report in a few areas and salt it with some rather interesting information. Uh, information that if anyone actually was reading it, I'd, I'd probably be hearing from them. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so we send it on down. Uh, nothing. I got nothing. No, not a word, not a single word, not even that's a great report, nothing. So the next month, uh, I lowered, I raised the level one. Now, we were reporting at the seventh level of WBF. I raised the level one, okay, and it goes down to about three feet, down to about three feet, so almost in half. Uh, and and it salted again with some interesting stuff and set it on down. Now I'm bored with the game. By now I'm I'm ready to get on to something more important. So in uh, in October, I uh, raised the level one more time. Now it's down to about nine inches. About nine mm -hmm. inches. Okay. Uh, and uh, since I wanted to edit the whole thing, I salted it again. Uh, but this time I salted it with some things about his family. <laughs> uh, primarily his uh, mother and sister. And so I put that stuff in there and sent it on down to the control office. Okay? One five minutes went by uh, that I, my phone's ringing. Now, back then we didn't have caller ID, but I knew who it was. Right. And I said, yeah, Frank, what's up? And he said, what's up? What, what do you mean, what's up? What, what are you doing there? He said, you, I don't think you understand. You can't get away with this. You can't do this, Lee. He said, there's going to be a problem. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, listen, I'm looking at this report. It's sitting on my desk. I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it. And Lee, he said, what, didn't this report used to be a lot thicker? <laughs> he still hadn't read it. He still hadn't read it. So by the time I left there to go to Columbus, Ohio for Battelle, we were reporting to the Department of Energy on a 24-page report, okay? Yeah, much that, that, the, the key here is that information that created the five-foot pile, it still was there. 
And if somebody needed a certain piece of information, we you could pull it out, but why would you send that to everybody all the time? Uh, what we need to do, and how many times have you heard a management say, uh, there's just too much information, I can't sort through all this. Oh my gosh. Set it aside. Yeah. And, and in that information are the things they need for decisions. So what we're trying to do with the enterprise approach, in my view, is, is create the ability to have a five-foot stack if that's what you need. We also have the ability to have two pages if that's all you need. So we've got to, we've got to understand that we're going to create a process where there's more information in there than any one individual would ever really have the need for. And if they do, they can get it. But that's a struggle because that takes time and it takes coordination. It takes integration. Uh, and and integrating these systems is not like it used to be for sure, but it still takes a lot of attention and and in a way costs. I mean, the, the people who are spending time integrating these systems uh, are they they're paid a pretty good salary. And so if we don't find a way to use the information, the next question is, well, why didn't we develop that? Mm -hmm. So what we got to do is work with the decision makers to really sort out what kind of information do you need to one manage your projects but two support the management of the organization yeah yeah exactly you know and it's so funny i love that story because it illustrates the fact that we get so caught up in creating our outputs that we forget to focus on the outcome which is that this information is being used to drive educated and informed decisions to move people faster to their decision-making process and if you're going to put so much information in front of them you create what I like to refer to as information indigestion right because they've got so much information in front of them they can't digest it mentally therefore they are frozen executives can't make decisions projects get stuck it's hard enough to get on their calendars anyway and you go into a meeting and you find that they're you know let's take the 24 page report for example because even that in my opinion is too long right so you know if you have if they're down on the bottom of page 16 of that 24 page report and they're stuck on some data point and you end up spending the whole meeting on that one data point and you're thinking to yourself this wasn't even relevant to the decision I needed, then I say, hey, PMO leaders and project managers, you put it in front of them, right? So if we're not yep. focused, and my gosh, I mean, these days, people don't have the attention spans they had back when you were you know, doing the five foot or even the 24 page report. People will just, if they can't see it on one page, it seems like, or in the top half of their phone when the email comes, they're not even paying attention to it. They're just scrolling past it, moving on, getting you know, distracted with other things. So I feel like whatever we can do to get them laser focused on specifically the issue that we're trying to get them to address, and move them through that faster, the better off we're gonna be. And I think you're really hitting an important point that you don't have to boil the ocean to start making progress with PPM. You know, you can just start with one pot on the stove at a time. You can just start with resource management. You brought a really good point there. You don't have to say, well, if we're gonna do PPM, it's gotta be a three-year implementation of some big tool and all this customization, all this stuff. Why don't you just start talking about all the people that you have working on these projects and how many projects they're on. So I'm glad you use that as a point to, to show that you don't have to start so big and, but just start. Right. So, how, so that's a great example of where someone can get started. Uh, how do they take advantage of what they might already have in front of them? You know, how do we keep this from being so complicated and overwhelming? It doesn't get done. Well, I think they just have to sort through what they already have. Uh, if you think about it, let's stay with the resource thing for a minute. If you think about it, almost every project manager does resource planning. Uh, that's part of the planning process. Right. Well, all we've got to do now is look at how do we, how do we capture and with clarity what the resource loads are across my project and then compare what the loads for that, those individuals are on other projects because fundamentally what's missing, I think, is an integrated WBS approach where everything is integrated up vertically and then we can integrate them horizontally as well. That's what's missing. And until we can do that, now if you, if you tell me, well, no, I can't, I, I really don't have that kind of resource loading information, then you're screwing up. You're, you're not doing your job. 
You need to have that information available to support your decisions. If nothing else, project managers ought to think about it in a way that this gives me validated, uh, and I'll use the word excuse, why our project's in the position it's in, because I can validate it with the information that results from our project management system. And so that way, then once focus on each project, that's what Gerstner did at IBM. He, he, did, he said the thread that runs through, it took three years to get that to happen. And he started with project by project by project. That's why the center of excellence was established. We're gonna get each project running itself effectively, and then we're gonna integrate all that information. So yeah. that's the that's the approach that we have to use. We don't have to we don't have to start out with the whole thing. In fact, we can't start out with the whole thing till till the bottom's in it. It's just like a building. You you got to build the foundation first, and then the rest of the building. If you're doing it in a different way, so you got to look at it from that perspective. Right, right. That makes perfect sense. So, PMO leaders listening might be like, okay, that's great but I can't get any budget for this, or I can't convince my executives that this is going to be useful, or they might even hear or know, even if they're not hearing it, that people don't, you know, like in all of the teams, all the stakeholders don't want the transparency because they don't want their pet project to get pulled or the light to be shined on how they're doing things in their area, et cetera. So how would PMO leaders in that position where they're, they can't even convince people that this is important what advice do you have for them on how to sh- how to get that support needed to even put the basics of PPM in place? Yeah, that's a good. That's an interesting question. I, I, one thing that uh, it takes is time. I think people need yeah. to realize that there's no quick fix. Uh, but if you look at that, uh, I'm going to say a really awful word that most project managers don't want to talk about: uh, closeout. Uh, I'll tell you what. If if I can't sell it about the value of it. The only other way I can illustrate the value is to take a project that had a problem and define how better information sooner could have helped avoid that problem. And usually there's a cost associated with it. Uh, in other words, use lessons learned yeah. uh, as your message. Don't you, I can tell you, I mean, IT people, the, the C, CIO, he'll come in and tell you that he wants to buy an off-the-shelf package that'll save the company $10 million a year. Well, where the hell do they get those numbers? He doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. So management decision makers go like, well, how do you validate that? So instead of trying that approach, take not failed projects. Well, fail too if you want. Uh, but projects that had difficulties, had challenges, define those challenges, and then define what could have been done with better support information sooner. Now, if you can't find that, you got a problem. If you can't find where the enterprise information might not have really made any difference. Well, then don't use that as a selling point. (laughs) (laughs) You got got to take a project that's had a problem. And and frankly, the more visible, the better has had a problem and, and configure a methodology that would have said, if, if, if we would have been able to do this project much more effectively, that might get their attention. Yeah, and that's something that I, um, so my Impact Engine PMO course, which is a soup to nuts, start to finish, you know, here, it, whether you are trying to hit the reset button on your PMO or building it from the from scratch, the steps that you need to go through, and it really closely follows my consulting framework that I've used to help PMO leaders all over the place, you know, build and run a PMO and implement project management capability. One of the things that I'm talking, I always talk about in there, one of the things that I talk about in my courses, like making a case for PMO, all of them, it all starts with identifying the pain right? So if you want to move the organization forward, you have to get crystal clear on why. Why for everything? Why the PMO? Why is the PMO a solution? Why is the service that you want to put in place the right service? And all of it goes back to whose problems are you solving? If you want to get stakeholder buy-in, if you want people to engage, if you want, you know, funding, support, any of it, you've got to be able to say, this is the pain I'm going to fix for you, right? So I think it's perfect to say, look at the lessons learned, look at the failures, look at where people are experiencing pain. And, you know, even talk to the people that are being overwhelmed on the projects. Talk about how if you didn't have those people overwhelmed on projects, look at what would happen. My uh, friend and colleague that you know, uh, Mike Hannon, he talks a lot about if you actually slow down, you're going to speed up. Meaning 
don't start all 50 projects at once, stagger them, just staggering them so that you can <laughs> make sure that your resources aren't tripled up on workload because they're not going to do it anyway. Eventually they have to sleep. So even if they're working long hours, they're not going to get it done anyway. You know, right, exactly. <laughs> spread things out and you'll, you'll actually get greater throughput across your whole portfolio. It's the same thing here. You've got to identify, you've got to do your detective work and identify where those pains are. And it's, not actually that hard because you can use this concept called having a conversation and people will talk about what annoys them right <laughs> yeah i mean that you know there's books out there that sell by the thousands called critical conversation so right it's been around a while i use a medical uh, analogy in this i i kind of think what's happening is that we're well two things we're creating sort of a pig pen environment right now where uh, you just create a lot of dust, a lot of action, a lot of things, a lot of movement, okay? A lot of busy. Open the dust never settles when you find out there's nothing in there. So we've got <laughs> a little of that going on. The analogy I use is a medical one, and that is I think we spend too much time treating symptoms mm. while the disease runs rampant. Mm. Now we, need to, we need to use the symptoms to enable us to treat the disease, and I, I just don't think we're doing that. And you know what? One of the reasons I think this is, is that people like the adrenaline of firefighting versus fire prevention. Fire prevention is boring, right? Firefighting is fun. You get to be the hero. You get to, the adrenaline gets pumping. Everyone gets excited and jumps on something. And that's part of the challenge is that it's so easy to say, well, I can put a bandaid on this. I can do an emergency fix by shuffling all my resources around. And so, boom, look at that. We're the hero. We got this, we got this project back on track, but now everyone's scrambling and other things get delayed and the, you perpetuate the problem. But if you had, you know, access to information that says the reason we're scrambling, the reason we had to do that fire drill is because we didn't have the information in front of us exactly. to make a good decision, then, yep. you know, that, that's where we need to be focusing our energy. And I think that you're shining a light on something that's incredibly important and an easy low hanging fruit opportunity for PMO leaders to make an impact quickly and make, you know, make their value known and understood transparency, just transparency, which is what this PPM stuff provides yep. can be a game changer for organizations because they don't, the executives rarely have, I'm constantly hearing from executives. I don't have the information I need to make decisions and it's not that hard. And I don't even think you need complicated systems. You can do it on an Excel spreadsheet. You can do it on a whiteboard. You can do it with sticky notes, just having the information in front of you, it will drive the right decision-making. Well, that's what I always say. I always drive that by asking the CEOs, the, the high-level management, what kind of decisions do, are you going to be required to make? And right. other than that, you can back down to what information they need to support it. But using your firefighter example, I, I use that occasionally too. Uh, and, it, and they are heroes. Everybody loves them. They're heroes. But what happens is sometimes that creates an interesting environment. If you're having multiple fires in your organization, there's a chance one of your people is an arsonist. <laughs> so true. Tell me more about that. What, is, what does that look like? Because I, I, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, uh, and I've seen it happen. I've seen people that intentionally may at least make it look like a fire. Maybe it's not really bad, but they make it look like it so they can be the hero. Yeah, you know, when I was teaching um, a course around uh, what I call attention management, not so much time management, but attention management, we all have the same amount of time, but it's how and where we focus our energy and our attention. And we were talking a lot about how, um, in their case, because they were in firefighter fighting mode all the time, they were perpetuating the situation and becoming the fire starters themselves. So for example, yep. they have all of these client projects going on, but because they're so busy and backlogged on projects that are underway, they delay to the last minute getting the information passed on to the next person for another project. So then that one becomes a fire drill too. And so they yep. just stacking on the fire drills because they're constant. They don't have any time to plan or think before they do. So they're doing, 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 fixing, fixing, fixing. And then all that planning time gets pushed off for the next project and the next project. And it just, it perpetuates. And I have to say, yeah, and, but, but isn't, it just, isn't it just a matter of analysis when you, when you're having multiple fires, 
isn't it a matter of analysis to find the root cause of the fires and then fix it? But right. instead, we perpetuate it by just, as you say, rolling it over, rolling it over, rolling it over. Pretty soon, every damn project's a firefight. Yeah. And uh, the problem with that is that everyone gets exhausted. And that's where burnout happens. I see so much burnout. And actually, one of our other speakers that is going to be a part of the summit is a new but dear friend of mine, Beth Genley. And she's an expert in burnout and helping people recover from burnout. And she has this cool burnout shield. And so we recorded her session and we were talking about burnout and how to prevent it and what it looks like and all of that kind of thing. And one of the important factors that we were talking about is the fact that we keep when we stay in this firefighting environment, we're perpetuating that burnout and so we never recover. And so we're constantly exhausted and it just seems hopeless, right? People start getting depressed, they start hating their jobs, they start getting frustrated and it's all because of this burnout. And it's something that high performers and high achievers, like I know all my impact drivers listening are, they are the ones that really need to pay attention to that because when they're in that kind of firefighting environment, that's where the unhealthy behaviors continue to perpetuate and lead to burnout of you, of your teams. And so if you start feeling like, I just don't care anymore, I'm frustrated or all that, all that typically, if you love what you do, but you've lost the love for it, it's because you're probably spending too much time in that anxiety high firefighting mode instead of leveraging the information you already have in front of you to make decisions and to move things forward in a much more planful, thoughtful manner. Well, there's a link that I agree with that. There's a link that with the, the closeout report, the lessons learned back in the day when I was actually doing work, I remember that, uh, I was always, I, I was always anxious to finish the project so I could get to the next project. Okay? Right. With this firefighting environment, you start to get so frustrated that you could give a damn rather you finish this project because you know there's another one just like it waiting for you. Right. So the burnout factor is huge. Yeah. Uh, and people will say, well, I'm not burnt out. I'm working 12 hours a day. Well, you're there 12 hours a day, but you're not doing 12 hours a day worth of work because yeah. you're burnt out. You just don't even know it. Right. Right. So the, so this all shines the light on the fact that with this PPM thing, right, this can be a solution to so many root cause problems that you're having in your organization. And it's a huge opportunity for PMO leaders to look at and look for those root causes and find ways to address some of that pain. Because even if people don't realize that if things just start running more smoothly, you will be their hero. That's the kind of hero that you want to yep. be. So what are some examples, Lee, <clears throat> of ways? So we talked about resource management. What are some other ways to have a um, easy um, first step along the path of portfolio management? What are some things that they could start looking for or things that they could start measuring? Because I always say, just start with a few basic metrics or a few things that you're, you're going to highlight or provide transparency on. What are some easy, low-hanging fruit ways to do that? Well, the first two, I'd always do resources. The second one is I would do cost comparisons, budget versus actual cost. Got to be a little careful about the delay in booking for the actual cost. I understand that. But that's a very uh, good way to determine Something's, something's going on differently than what we planned because right. we planned X amount and it's Y amount as well, how much we spent. So I can do that and I can do that pretty easily, which means integration with the cost system. It means timely information, but I can do that very quickly. I can look at that in a, in a heartbeat and see deltas. Now, there's not always a problem as a result of delta. It could be bad data, it could be what, but we need to sort that out so that we right. can provide that to decision makers. The, the other big thing though, even if I take the low hanging fruit and think about it, and I roll that information up, then the decision makers have to be willing to make a decision. Yeah. Nothing more frustrating than working to integrate all this information and, and really sort of getting excited. I don't know when project managers don't get that excited, but really getting excited <laughs> about about what you've provided to the decision maker and then the decision maker goes in a different direction or doesn't even use it at all. So this is really, uh, this is what I see in some of the PMO people that I work with. They say, well, we, we've really provided some good things for management. Uh, and then they very quickly follow up, but it's really not getting used. Yeah. We, we have to make that connection. So that's why I really like how you're talking about top 
down and bottom up kind of both, right? Because you do the bottom up with, get, with how you gather all of the data to give that bigger picture perspective. But you also mentioned the, having conversations with the executives about what they actually need. Sure. Right? So if you, I, I always say that if you assume you're probably wrong, never think that you have the answer as to the medicine that they need to take because they're not going to take it. And the only way you're going to get them to take the medicine they need to take is if it comes from them first, if it's their idea. So you might know there's, there's five data points that if they had them, they would be able to make better decisions. But if that's not the data they're saying they need, then you've got to start with what they need first. And then that will usually drive if you tie those data points they've asked for and the pain that it's going to solve, usually you can get them to actually use that information. But if you're just coming to them with, look at my fancy report, look at my great stuff, look at how wonderful I am with all this data I'm giving you, they're not going to care. But if you can tie the data that the pain point they have with the data that they're asking for and start there, even if you know it's not the most important data points, you're still getting their attention and they're still going to use that information much more likely than if you just go and present information that you think they need. Yeah, well, the, I agree with that. The problem is uh, it's kind of like that doctor when they try to give you medicine and you don't want to take it because you think it's poison. <laughs> that's, what we run, that's what we run into. You know, we do, we do that with our kids all the time. No, take this. It, it, won't, it tastes good. And it tastes like crap. <laughs> uh, and once it, you see what happens is the trust level goes down right so somehow we've got to convince them, no it's not poison it's good stuff it's it's the medicine you need to get well uh once that what the problem here is and you may not have experienced this once that light goes on it almost becomes negative because now they begin to ask for too much information yeah so you also have to be the filter to question are right you, are you sure you really need this Right, uh, and so we have kind of a dual role where oh, we want to provide you all this information, oh, but not that. We don't want we don't want to provide you that. Right. And so there there is some. Well, there's there's a personality issues. There's uh, the ability to communicate effectively with the with the senior level people, so they understand you're not just trying to build a PMO empire. That you're right. you're actually trying to help the organization be more profitable. Right. Uh, once you do that, once you get their trust. Right. Then, then it goes a lot more smoothly. Well, and the way you get that trust is by solving a problem for sure. them. Right? Yeah. 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 So I always say that there's some roles that uh, PMO leaders need to have in their organization. And one is a fiduciary, right? Because every yep. one of those projects that they are managing or overseeing or responsible for should be yielding the highest possible return on investment. And that's what those projects are, is investments. And also, they are the strategy navigator, helping to make sure that those projects are seen through all the way to completion. But most importantly, they are trusted advisor. And the, you have to build that trust slowly. And by building that trust, you can they'll have the right conversations with you about what they need. And they'll listen when you say, well, you don't need that as much as you need this. And are you sure you need that, et cetera? Because I can see it going down that rabbit hole of, okay, well now we've got 50 metrics that we want to gather. And you know, that's not really what they're using to make decisions. So I always, when you start getting into that rabbit hole with your executives, we're like, great, now you gave us this information. What about these other 50 data points? I always like to show them the cost of gathering that information. Because if it costs a lot of money to gather this information and time and energy and effort, and the more data you're gathering, the longer it will take, it'll slow down decision-making, et cetera. So I like to get them to focus on their top priorities. And when they start asking for more, say, is it worth the investment of time it will take to get this data point? And how exactly is this data point driving decisions? So you're right. You have yeah, I, to I, think that, I think that approach is good. One of the things I caution people on, though, with that, uh, because oftentimes cost is usually an excuse to not do it, uh, is uh, that that the short-term, long-term effects. I mean, maybe it's going to cost X amount up front, and that looks like a lot of money for that decision point. But as you use it over time, now it's free. The next next nine months is free. Right. You've already implemented. You've already put it into place. You've already absorbed that cost. So we really have to make sure they understand this is a this is a strategic decision. Uh, and, and it needs to be thought about as a strategic, not a short-term, but a strategic long-term decision. 
Right, right. Well, I think we have given them a good sense of what they can expect in your summit presentation on PPM. Are there any other bits of advice or wisdom from your 50 plus years in the project management space that you think PMO leaders should keep in mind as they're thinking about embarking on the journey of either improving or implementing for the first time their a project portfolio management solution in their organization? Yeah, I can sum that role up pretty easily. They have to be cautious, extremely cautious, that they don't take from being a uh, support organization, because that's what they are, support organization, and through a desire to control things more, become a Gestapo. Yeah. There's just no way that it's going to be effective if they're seen as the policing organization. They're the organization providing the information, working with the troops to get the information they need, uh, and this, so I get a little hung up on forms and formats. And uh, I mean, pretty soon I've seen that PMOs uh, become template producers. Yeah. You know, and they get the reputation for that. I tell that joke all the time in my classes. It gets great response. But the fact of the matter is they, they convert from support to Gestapo. Gives them power. Gives them a sense of strength. Uh, they got to give it up. You got to be a service organization. If you're not, it, it, it won't be effective. People will, it'll look like they're supporting you. It'll, yeah. They'll be careful to make it look like they're supporting you, but uh, they're not giving you what they need to give you to be effective. Right, right. No, that's so important because information is power. And if we use that for evil instead of uh, for yeah. good, <laughs> right, exactly, we'll end up in a really vicious situation. And by the way, guys, uh, last year, Lee talked about that PMO Gestapo thing on the virtual summit for last year. So if you go to uh, PMOimpactsummit.com, you do have an option to check out last year's content as well. And so you can see Lee's session from last year as well as be the first to get access to Lee's session for this year. Lee, it's been an honor as always to highlight you and just have a great conversation with you. Um, I am honored to be a part of your network and I'm grateful for everything that you've done for the project management community, for PMI, and uh, for my impact driver community specifically. So thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. I, uh, I always enjoy working with you, Laura. I can tell by the smile that you actually enjoy what you're doing. That's a key. Oh, for sure. You got to love it because we're putting a lot of hours into this stuff, right? All of you right. impact drivers out there, we're putting a lot of hours in. We better love what we do. And I love supporting all of you. And that's why we do this PMO Impact Summit. So if you have not registered yet, what are you waiting for? It's free, <laughs> it's free in September, PMOImpactSummit.com. And I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for your time today, Lee. Thank you.